We come now to the reading and preaching of God's word. And if you'll notice, we're going to read from Philippians chapter 3. Uh, we'll read from verses 12 through 21. The sermon focus will be on verses 20 and 21. When you find that, uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 21. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had, has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Join your hearts with mine. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come again to sit under your word, we pray that you would remind us of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remind us of the glory of what you have done to redeem a people to be your own. Remind us that Jesus even now lives in heaven for us and will come from heaven to save us. Remind us that Jesus is even now making us fit for life in heaven and that one day we will see you in the face of Jesus Christ. Remind us that you are at work perfecting both our bodies and our souls, that we might love you perfectly and worship you rightly. Remind us that you have made us citizens of heaven. And may you deepen our faith for your glory and honor and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, however you might define evangelical, and that's a very difficult term to define precisely, but however you define evangelical, it's certainly the case that those who identify as evangelicals have, particularly in recent years, had a strong interest in Christian nationalism. One driver behind this interest in so-called Christian America or Christian nationalism is the perceived dramatic increase in cultural worldliness, growing immorality, the dissolution of marriage and the family, abortion, the destruction of our cities, the breakdown of law and order, all this and more has contributed to this interest. There's a desire among many Christians to re-Christianize America since its fall from grace. You might call it the Make America Christian Again movement. And, and just as a side note, there are other versions. There's a Hungarian Christian nationalism. 
But in any case, baptizing political ideologies and public policies into the language of the Christian faith is not the Christian faith. And too often, Christians find their hope and their identity in the political sphere. As if control over the levers of political and cultural power is where it's really at. As if influence over others were the purpose of our existence. As if the focus of the Christian life is first and foremost a focus on earthly citizenship, our duties, rights, and privileges we have in our republic. But see, what we see in our passage this morning is something very different. Rather than a focus on earthly citizenship or the pursuit of political or cultural relevance and influence, rather than a focus on earthly citizenship, Paul associates the church, identifies believers with a created space we call heaven. Because the faith of believers terminates on Jesus, because Jesus is now in heaven and lives in heaven, it's right to say that the faith and the hope of believers is directed to heaven, because it's directed to Jesus. Now, I don't think it always is, but it should be obvious that the New Testament answer to Old Testament Israel is not America or Hungary or any other country, but rather the church of Jesus Christ. The church are the called out ones, called out from the kingdoms and the peoples and the nations and the countries of this world to be citizens of heaven. Now, as we consider Paul's words, particularly in verses 20 and 21 this morning, and to help us think just about some of the many implications and applications of our passage, and look, we're just going to barely scratch the surface, but to help us think about our passage, we'll consider it under three headings. First, Christ has merited your citizenship in heaven. Second, Christ lives in heaven for you and will come from heaven to save you. And third, Christ will transform you and make you fit for life in heaven. So again, Christ has merited your citizenship in heaven. Christ lives in heaven for you and will come from heaven to save you. And Christ will transform you and make you fit for life in heaven. So first, Christ has merited your citizenship in heaven. Now, right away, you will notice that Paul does not explain the relationship between the merit of Christ and citizenship explicitly. He says nothing about Jesus' obedience to God for the purpose of securing your life in heaven, at least not directly. Nevertheless, it is a fact that Christ himself presently lives in heaven And his present life in heaven is a result of his obedience to God. Paul gets close to this in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, when he explains that Christ took on humanity and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that as a result, as a result, God has highly exalted him so that he has a name above every name and everyone in heaven and on earth will bow before him. Now, when Paul says in verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, he is directly connecting the place we call heaven with the present real-time location of the savior. The savior, Jesus Christ, lives in heaven now. And it's from this place, verse 20, from it that we believers wait for him. Now, I think it's important 
when we say that Jesus lives in heaven, that we make clear that in the Bible, heaven is a created space. Heaven is part of creation. Heaven is not a metaphor for happiness or a life of blessedness. Heaven does not refer to some timeless, ethereal realm outside of creation. Heaven has dimensions. There's a geography of heaven. Just think for a moment about how Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 2 makes reference to the third heaven. But even more, even more than the reality of the space, which I trust for us is beyond question, the fact is, That heaven in scripture as a created space is the space which God promised as a reward for obedience. We have to go back a little bit. In the beginning, God was clear with Adam that if he disobeyed, he would die. If he obeyed, he would live. Those were the terms of the covenant. And it's important here as we consider the fact that Christ merited your citizenship in heaven, that we consider life and death according to scripture. See, the death that God promised for disobedience was more than mere dissolution of the body, more than the separation of the soul and the body at the point of physical death. More to the point, the death promised for disobedience is the alienation and the misery, the utter misery that results when you are forced from the place of God's presence and fellowship Because of a failure to do the will of God. And in this sense, physical death is a window into a deeper and more miserable reality, spiritual death. And on the other side, the life promised by God for obedience was more than simply working the fields. It was more than a life of perpetual work and rest, a never-ending cycle. Rather, the life promised as a reward for obedience was life in consummate fellowship with God. And in this sense, physical life is a window into a deeper and more glorious reality, spiritual life. Had Adam obeyed, he would have been confirmed in eternal life, life in fellowship with God. And the place of this fellowship, catch the place of this fellowship, ultimately considered, is heaven. Isaiah 66 says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Isaiah declares that God sits above the circle of the earth, Isaiah 40, 22. In the book of Daniel, God is repeatedly called the God of heaven. In Deuteronomy 26, 15, heaven is called God's holy habitation. David in Psalm eleven four says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. And Jesus himself opens the Lord's prayer by saying, our father in heaven. See, had Adam obeyed, He would have been confirmed in righteousness, and the very heaven of heavens would have been opened to him. Access to God in heaven would have been confirmed through his obedience. And when we say access to God, we mean fellowship and communion with God. Fellowship, friendship, peace, and glory. See, that's why God created Adam in the first place. And see, all of this fills out for us what it means for Christ to merit our citizenship in heaven. God created Adam in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, Ephesians 4, 24, Colossians 3, 10. And he created him in immediate fellowship with himself for fellowship. And he gave him a probationary test to see whether Adam would obey. And as a result, there would be life or there would be death. See, life and death are determined by whether you have fellowship 
with God. Think about what Jesus says in John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. See, to know God in righteousness and in true communion and fellowship is eternal life. And death, as the opposite of life, death, not just physical death, spiritual death is that alienation and utter misery that results when you're cast from God's presence because of sin. And see here, the gospel of God's grace shines so beautifully. It's the free grace of God that after having forfeited the privilege of a life in fellowship with God, after having denied our creator and allied ourselves with God's arch enemy, Satan, it is the free grace of God that God would set about the work of bringing a people back to himself. That's grace. That's free grace. It's God's free grace that Christ would do what Adam should have done to win what Adam should have won, the right to life in the heavenly places, the right to a heavenly citizenship. See, the fact, the simple fact that Jesus Christ presently lives in heaven, as we're told in Philippians 3.20, that simple fact entails that Jesus has earned his way there. And having taken upon himself the responsibility of suffering for the sin of his people, having assumed the responsibility of their guilt in his baptism in the Jordan, Jesus would not have access to heaven except by the way of obedience, even obedience to death. The wages of Adam's sin is death, Romans 5.12. And for us to live, brothers and sisters, for us to live, we must have one who can satisfy the wrath of God for that disobedience and yet still live. We need a person strong enough to endure the full intensity of the wrath of God, to suffer death itself and yet still live. And we have such a person, a divine person. Now, through the person of the Son of God, redemption has been accomplished in history. Through the person of Christ, sinners may now draw near to God. Because Christ has obeyed his Father in everything, he has earned the right to life. He has earned the right to life in heaven And even now in heaven, Jesus presents his blood, his obedience, his death, his life. He presents himself as your sacrifice and the ground of your peace with God. By the death of Christ, we are at peace with God. And by his life, by his resurrection to eternal life, we now live to God. We draw near to God. Because Christ has removed the offense of sin forever, he has satisfied and extinguished the wrath of God in the cross for those who have broken his law and were rightly under its condemnation. And the fact, the simple fact, that Jesus died but now lives in heaven means he's merited heaven. He's earned it. And having merited his right to heaven, he now opens it to all his people. Praise God, he's merited your citizenship in heaven. So that's point one. That brings us to our our second point this morning. Christ even now lives in heaven for you and will come from heaven to save you. Again, verse 20 tells us that we await a savior from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. And see, while we wait, while we wait, we need to be conscious of the work that Christ is presently doing, presently doing right now. What is Christ doing right now? 
Hebrews 7, 24 and 25 says, But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the other, uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. See, Jesus continues forever. Unlike the priests of the Old Covenant who were prevented by death from continuing in office, Jesus continues forever because he's resurrected from the dead. And he's ascended into heaven. And he presently lives there in that created space. And there in that space, he lives to intercede for you. It's possible to draw near to God through Christ because Christ is a divine person. Christ is God who assumed human nature to himself into the unity of his person. He has assumed human nature to himself to free us from the curse due to us because of sin. And he has done that in his humanity, in the cross and in the resurrection. And even now he lives for you. Even now he lives for you. Again, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior. When Paul says our citizenship, he means the church. Those who congregate in obedience to Christ's command, those who have been baptized and who publicly confess Christ and identify with him, those who are called out from the kingdoms and nations and countries of this world to be citizens of heaven. Now, the word citizenship in the American Heritage Dictionary means the status of being a citizen with attendant duties, rights, and privileges. I'm not an expert in Greek, but the underlying Greek has a similar meaning. You believers, you have duties, rights, and privileges associated with your status as a people who will, one day in the future, populate the created space that we call heaven. Christ is the first to be resurrected and to live in heaven, but the church, the believing church, will follow him into that place by their own resurrection to eternal life. Now when Paul says here that Christ will come from heaven to save us, that we await a Savior who now lives in heaven, it's important. He's not saying salvation is yet to be fully accomplished. There's no warrant at all for that view. There's no warrant for any view in which Christ's work is uncertain or incomplete. Everything necessary for your redemption and life has been accomplished in the cross and in the resurrection. There's nothing left to be done to secure salvation for the people of God. The writer of Hebrews gets at this when Jesus is called the founder and perfecter or finisher of our faith. Hebrews 12, too. Now, as we wait, as we wait, clearly there's a future aspect, there's an undeniable future dimension to the salvation that Christ has already secured. That's at least part of the significance of the term await in verse 20. We're, we're awaiting, we're, we're waiting for the Savior to show himself. We're in a holding pattern. We're waiting for something to happen. Now, I think it's helpful to step back at this point, just briefly, consider what is Paul doing in this, in this passage more broadly. In context, Paul has in view a contrast between those who have their minds set on earthly things and those who have their minds set on heavenly things. That, that contrast is in view. For those who are earthly-minded, the present time of waiting for the appearance of Jesus is obviously wasted away. The earthly-minded, they don't believe in the living person of Christ, obviously, and Many mock the idea of his personal, visible appearance in the future. I've heard more than once, oh, you believe in the man in the sky. See, the the earthly-minded lack faith. 
And because they lack faith, they seek their joy, they seek their fulfillment, their hope, their meaning, their purpose, their very life and things that are made in created things. That's where their mind is, that's where their heart is. And the way Paul puts this is that their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But see, that's not who you are, people of God. That's not who you are. You are citizens of heaven awaiting your Savior to appear from that place and Christ will come from that place to save you and to bring you to himself. Now, of course, as we wait, as we wait, we should recognize there's a present earthly citizenship we have, right? It's not wrong to think about all the duties, rights, and privileges we have with respect to our republic. I'm told today is Sanctity Sunday. Uh, January 22, 1984, President Reagan issued a presidential statement to bring awareness to the attack on human life through abortion. And see, we as Christians do and we should reject the evil of abortion in our republic. We oppose those who promote it. But see, Paul does not sound at all like some proponents of Christian America. He does not sound at all like a Christian nationalist. See, our hope, our delight, our joy is not first or foremost what God is going to do in our country, whatever that country might be. Paul in Philippians 3.20 shows us the most basic identity of the believer is one who belongs to Christ. And because Christ lives in heaven, the most basic identity of the believer is one who belongs in heaven. See, your earthly citizenship, however legitimate in itself, is not your most basic identity. And it can never be, and it should never be. You could even say that Paul is in effect, in effect here, reminding believers that after all is said and done, after all the kingdoms of this world fade away, after all nations run their course, after all countries fall, believers have a life with God in a country called heaven. And that is where Christ is. And he will come from there to save you and to bring you to himself, to be with him forever as a citizen of heaven. Jesus said in John 14, 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Make our home with him. That's the second point. And third, Christ will make you fit for life in heaven. Notice again our passage. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Christ, as a divine person, is the Son of God, and as the Son of God is the Creator God. See, the idea of Christ as creator is underneath this last phrase in our passage. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. See, the all things here is without qualification. Only the power of God as creator can subject all things. And it's on the basis of the same power. The same power of God which enabled God to create in the first place. That God will recreate, that he will transform you and make you fit to enter his special presence forever. Christ is the creator and the recreator. And it is this savior who promises a transformation, even recreation of the body. 
The Savior Jesus who comes from heaven promises to transform you. He promises to transform your earthly and lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, a body fit for life in the heavenly places. Jesus will come to transform your body now called lowly, your present body made from the dust of the earth. He will transform your body. He will make it new to be like his glorious body. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 42, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. To be transformed and to be made like unto the glorious body of Jesus is to be transformed in resurrection life, to be recreated with a glorified human nature fit for life in the heavenly places. A body made like unto the very glorious body of Jesus himself. 1 Corinthians 15, 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. See, Jesus, our Savior, the man of heaven, has a body which has been raised from the dead and which can never die again. His body is impervious to suffering, impervious to sickness and weakness and death. Christ now has a glorified human nature in the power of resurrection life, in the power of an indestructible life, as the writer of Hebrews puts it. And he will make your body like his own. And he will do this by the very power that created the heavens and the earth, the mountains and the valleys, the rivers and the oceans, by the power which stretched out the heavens like a tent, and by the power that laid the foundations of the earth, by that same power, by the power of God's creative activity, you will be transformed your lowly body will be made new. Now, it's important at this point. I think it's important at this point to consider that Christ intends to transform your lowly bodies and give you glorious bodies for a purpose which extends beyond the transformation itself. This isn't most basically about the transformation of your body externally considered. Rather, the transformation of the body is to further God's design to have fellowship with you. It is to further God's design to have true communion and fellowship with you. This was God's original design for his relationship to Adam and his children. So yes, your lowly body will be transformed to be like the glorious body of the resurrected Jesus Christ, but not as an end in itself. Your body will be transformed that you would have communion and fellowship with God directly in the face of Jesus Christ. I mean, see him. In Revelation 1, 17 and 18, we read, When I saw him, that is the resurrected Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Christ has conquered death and in resurrection life he gives life to his people. And see the focus, the focus of this work of recreation, the focus is on a new heavens and a new earth. In Revelation 21, 1 through 4, John sees a new heavens and a new earth. He sees a holy city, Jerusalem, which has been made new. And as it descends out of heaven from God, it is characterized as a bride adorned for her husband. And see, there we're told that in this new creation, God will dwell with his people. 
God will dwell with us. See, that's what it really means to be a citizen of heaven. That you would dwell with God and be his people. And that he would be your God. In speaking of this new creation, in speaking of this heavenly citizenship, Revelation 21.3 says, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The ultimate dwelling place. The ultimate tabernacle. The ultimate country. The ultimate kingdom is God with us in Jesus Christ. And see, this new creation's already begun. Brothers and sisters, this new creation's already begun. Christ is even now making you fit for life in heaven. See, the transformation of the body promised in verse 21, which awaits all the faithful in Christ, the transformation of the body promised here has as its present time answer the transformation of the sin-sick soul. See, our soul, made up of our minds, our intellects, our wills, emotions, Our soul was corrupted in the fall. And the intellect, will, and emotions, the soul is now, by grace, through the word of God and by the spirit of God, being transformed and is being renewed. See, part of being made fit for heaven is the renewal of our inner life. The renewal of our soul. See, as born in sin, we are born with an intellect, will, and emotions which are hostile to God. In sin, the mind is darkened, Ephesians 4.18. In sin, the will is hostile to God. Romans 2, 5. And Jesus, now living in heaven for you, by the power of the Spirit, renews you inwardly, enabling you to grasp Christ in faith, enabling you to believe in the gospel of his grace, that through the death and resurrection of Christ, you are reconciled to God. You have peace with God. God is at peace with you. You are enabled by the power of the Spirit to believe in God's promise that from heaven comes a Savior who will transform you. How supernatural is that? You are enabled to believe in the creative and recreative power of God who will give you resurrected bodies, who will transform your lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, and he will unite that glorious body with a perfectly sanctified soul. And he will do this so that you would, as glorified human beings, obviously not boast in yourself or exalt in yourselves, but that you would be proper vessels for the worship and honor and glory and praise of God. So that you would be vessels renewed for fellowship with God. See, Christ is even now making you fit for life in the heavenly places. See, Christ has come that you might have life and have it abundantly in true communion with God forever as citizens of heaven. Let's praise our great and glorious God that forever in heaven itself we will have fellowship with God in the face of the risen Jesus To God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, be all glory now and forever. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do praise you for your grace and mercy. We praise you that through Jesus Christ, you have saved us and preserved us, and that you have saved us for fellowship and communion with yourself. We praise you for the life, the hope of life in heaven with you. We praise you that you promised to transform us in both body and soul that we might enter heaven as your redeemed people to worship you forever. Cause us to live, even now, as a people who will one day populate heaven itself. Cause us to walk, even this week, in faith and repentance as a demonstration of your power and glory. And may all honor and praise and worship and glory be given to you and to you alone, O Father, Son, and Spirit, now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen.